0: Beloved congregation and our Lord Jesus Christ, as we consider together this afternoon the ninth commandment, I want to emphasize the point that we need to learn to control our tongues. This is a point that is made to us very in a very negative way, often in the Psalms. Think of how often uh, the uh, psalmist David complained about the wicked words which his enemies were speaking of him. There are a a number of these psalms in the uh, book of Psalms, but let's just look at a few examples from the early part of that book. First of all, Psalm 3, verse 2, where David says, Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Psalm five, verse nine, is another example. There is no faithfulness in their mouth; their inward part is destruction; their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongues. Again, in Psalm uh, seven, verse three, or actually in the heading of that psalm, first a meditation which of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. This Cush had made a false accusation against David, and David talks about that false accusation in verses 3 and following. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Or again, in Psalm twelve verses two and following, they speak idly, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that speak speaks proud things, who have said with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. James also has a, a Major concern, of course, with the uh, use of the tongue in that famous chapter, chapter 3 of his epistle. But you find him talking about the tongue also in chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. If you don't bridle your tongue, James says, your religion is useless. And again in chapter 3, verse 2 For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. And as we've seen before, the book of Proverbs talks about the use of the tongue in almost every single chapter of the book. And not usually in just one or two verses in the chapter, but in frequent verses throughout the chapter. It is probably the most prominent subject in the whole book of Proverbs, the righteous and wicked use of the tongue. Now, when I say that we must learn to control our tongues, I mean by that two things. First of all, we must learn to restrain our tongues from speaking what is wicked. But secondly, we must also learn to use our tongues for good. There must be both things going on. And in Proverbs 12, verses 13 to 23, those are the verses we want to consider tonight. Proverbs 12, verses 13 to 23, we have this idea set forth very clearly. Most of the parallelisms, if not all of the parallelisms, in these 11 verses in Proverbs chapter 12 are antithetical parallelisms. That is, they contrast the righteous and the wicked. And they contrast the righteous and the wicked, especially with regard to the use of their tongues. So we look at the passage under the theme wicked and righteous tongues. And we look first at the fundamental difference between the righteous and the wicked tongue. Then we look at other differences as described in this chapter. And finally, we look at God's rewards to both the righteous and the wicked tongue. The fundamental difference between the righteous and the wicked tongue, I think, is found in verse 18 of our text. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. That verse stands at the center of The verses we're looking at, 13 to 23, five verses before it and five verses after it. And it is also the central thought of these verses. And notice that it is, as we've already suggested in the introduction, an antithetical parallelism which contrasts the wicked use of the tongue with the righteous use of the tongue. The one destroys the other, builds up. <clears throat> the one is like the piercings of a sword, the other promotes health. So let's look then at the first half of verse 18 first. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword. Now the word that is translated here as speaks is not the ordinary Hebrew word for speaking Instead, it's a word which really means to speak rashly. It's, uh, the two ideas of speaking and rashness in speaking are contained in the one word. And you can see this in Psalm 106, verses 32 and 33, which are about Moses. They angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. That's the same word that we have here in verse 18. There is one who speaks rashly like the piercings of a sword. In other words, Solomon is talking particularly about one who speaks rashly. He's not talking about that wicked man, then, who speaks after careful planning who speaks wickedly, certainly, but who speaks carefully, who speaks thoughtfully, who speaks after thinking about what he's going to say and is plotting evil in his heart and is using words carefully to accomplish the evil which he has plotted. He's talking here in this verse about one who speaks rashly, who doesn't think before he speaks, who has a thought in his heart and who utters the thought. Without consideration of whether the thought is true or false, whether the thought is good or bad, whether the thought will have good or harmful effects, he just opens his mouth and talks. He speaks rashly. He may speak rashly out of anger. He may speak rashly because he's simply a fool and thinks he needs to be talking. He may speak rashly because he's in haste to cut off someone else from speaking. Whatever the reason may be, he speaks too hastily. And this man then, who speaks rashly, speaks, Solomon says, like the piercings of a sword. There is murder in his tongue. And there's murder in his tongue because of two things. First of all, there is murder in his tongue because there is murder in his heart. I want to go back for a moment here to the Heidelberg Catechism's discussion of the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, and note what the, uh, the Catechism says about that commandment. In question and answer 106, does this commandment speak only of killing? No, but in forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors its very root, namely envy, hatred, anger, and desire of Revenge and that in his sight, all these are hidden murder. Well, what Solomon is saying here is something very similar to that. He's saying the man who speaks rashly speaks like the piercings of a sword because there is in his heart these motives that may lead on the one hand to killing, but on the other hand to killing with the tongue, murder by means of the tongue. And they are the same because they come from the same root. They come from the roots of envy, hatred, anger, desire of revenge, and so on. Murder and rash speaking, murder and bitter words come from the same kind of heart. But in the second place, this evil speaking is called murder here. Is said to be like the piercings of a sword because it does harm. Not only does it come from a heart that is filled with murder, but it actually does harm to the neighbor. So Solomon would say, for example, of Doag the Edomite that he murdered the priests of Nob with his tongue before ever he raised his hand against them. about false teachers, that they murder souls by their false teachings, about Jezebel, that when she sent her message to Elijah saying, by tomorrow I am going to make your life like the life of the prophets of Baal, she was committing murder with her tongue. Solomon would say about those of whom the Apostle Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that they also were guilty of murder. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. So Solomon's talking about murdering with our tongues simply by rash speaking, by not restraining our tongues and considering the effect or the nature of the words which have come into our hearts. And the third thing we should notice about this is that in contrasting this man who speaks rashly with the wise man in the second part of the verse, Solomon certainly is saying that this man is a fool. He says, the tongue of the wise promotes health. That means, then, that the man who speaks rashly is a fool. Now, the one who is a fool is one who says in his heart, there is no God. He may not express it in so many words. He may not even express it to himself in so many words, but his Actions, his behavior betray the fact that he has no regard for God. He is a practical, if not a theoretical or theological atheist. He is one who behaves as if he will never be called to account for his actions. And the fool who opens his mouth and murders with his tongue is one who does not take regard of God, does not have regard for God, and does not take account of God's coming judgment. He's like a man who's walking through a snowstorm, a blinding snowstorm, and says, there is no snow. He denies basic reality, reality that would hit him in the face if only he would open his eyes To see. He denies that there is a God. He is a fool. On the other hand, there is the wise man whose tongue promotes health. That wise man is, of course, the opposite of the fool. He knows God and fears Him. And because he fears God, he strives to keep his commandments. He understands that his wisdom is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he seeks that wisdom from the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses his tongue then to promote the well-being of his neighbor. A couple more verses that talk along this same line are chapter 15, verse 4. Chapter 15, verse 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And in chapter 16, verse 24, pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. A good example of this wise kind of speech that promotes health is Abigail, who used her tongue. To dissuade David from killing her fool of a husband, she used her tongue to protect a fool. She promoted the health of her neighbor even in spite of his own character. But another thing we should note about the tongue of the wise promoting health is that this doesn't mean that the tongue of the wise always speaks kind and gentle and soft words. Jesus was a man who used his tongue wisely. And yet we find him speaking very harshly to the scribes and Pharisees. You fools and blind, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs. This is not foolish speech. This is not rash speech. This is not the speech that pierces like a sword in the sense that Solomon is talking about it here, that commits murder. This is wise speech that promotes health. It promotes health for those who need to see through the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, but it promotes health also for the Pharisees and the scribes themselves. If only they will hear the words which Jesus is speaking. When Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, that was a very severe word that he spoke to Peter, but it promoted Peter's health. So uh, the words of the wise are not always soft and kind and gentle words. They are sometimes harsh words, severe words, words of rebuke, words of admonition, words of correction, words of anger. But words, nevertheless, that whatever their character, are words that promote health. And so the wise man, here in verse 18, is one who doesn't speak rashly, but who thinks about his neighbor's good. And who uses his tongue, then, to promote the good of his his neighbor. He doesn't speak carelessly and through his carelessness injure his neighbor. He has in mind what will be good for his neighbor and he speaks what is good, what will promote his well-being. That's the fundamental difference between the righteous and the wicked tongue. But let's go on now to look at some of the other differences that Solomon talks about here in this section of the book. And as we look at the rest of the verses of this uh, section, they fall into two categories which we've divided between these other points of the sermon. First of all, Solomon continues in some of these other verses to compare the righteous and the wicked tongue. And then in the rest of the verses, also kind of scattered throughout the um, section, he talks about the rewards that God gives to both the righteous and the wicked tongues. And so in the second point, we're singling out those verses that compare the righteous and wicked tongues. The first of those verses is in verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Now you may look at that verse and you may say, what does that have to do with speaking? And why is that verse found here in this paragraph, if this is indeed a paragraph? Well, I think we should see two connections here between this verse and the whole subject of speaking. In the first place, Solomon uses this word counsel again in verse 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have uh, joy. Counselors of peace have joy. He's talking about, verse 20, those who speak counsel. Very clearly has to do with speaking. But here in verse 15, he's talking about hearing counsel. And the one who heeds counsel here in verse 15, is the one who heeds the counsel of the man he's talking about. In verse 20, the counselor of peace. He's not just heeding any counsel. There's lots of bad counsel out there, and Solomon certainly doesn't want us to listen to all kinds of bad counsel. He wants us to listen to the counsel of the wise. So that's the first connection with this passage. But the second connection is, people of God, that we should recognize that the Bible itself and our own experience teaches us that if we have our mouth open, we can't listen. And so James says, be swift to hear, slow to speak. You can't do both at the same time. Be swift to hear, slow to speak. And so what Solomon is talking about here is the man, the fool, who has his mouth open because he won't listen to counsel. And the man who doesn't have his mouth open because he will listen to counsel. He who heeds counsel is wise. He's a man who's swift to hear, slow to speak, while the fool is the other way around. He's swift to speak and slow to hear. So what what does Solomon say about the fool? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. He has a way. He has a path that his feet follow. He has a, a conduct, rules of conduct for his life. He has a goal that he's pursuing, and he's taking the actions he thinks necessary to achieve that goal. But he's a fool, and because he's a fool, he thinks of his way as right, right? You may talk to him, you may warn him that his way is going to end in disaster. You may point out to him the errors of his way, but he won't hear you. And he won't hear you because his way is right, is upright in his own eyes. He has no time to listen to those who criticize his way. He'll willingly hear anyone who flatters him and says, this is wonderful. You're doing all the things that I should be doing. Let me learn from you, but he won't learn from one who criticizes him. His way is right in his own eyes, and exactly because he thinks his way is right in his own eyes, he is a fool. It's the wise man who listens to counsel. He doesn't immediately conclude that because he thinks so, a thing must be right. He doesn't immediately conclude that because his feelings all direct him one way, that those feelings must be directing him in the right way. This is a man who stops and thinks and wonders whether his way is right and who takes counsel before he goes. On that way, he stops and he considers and he says, I'm a sinful man. I have blind spots, I have weaknesses, I have prejudices, I have all kinds of sin and corruption in me. My heart is deceitful. Before I go on this way, let me take counsel from the godly so that they may show me if I am making any kind of error. One very good example of a man taking counsel is Moses in the wilderness, listening to the counsel of Jethro, his father-in-law. Moses could well have been at that point. It was only a month or two after they had left Egypt. He could well have been puffed up with pride about all that he had accomplished in Egypt, about the strength of his words to Pharaoh and about how he had dealt with Pharaoh and all those uh, plagues that God had uh, brought upon Pharaoh through his instrumentality. But Moses is still humble and able to receive counsel from his father-in-law. So this first verse that contrasts the of right, the fool and the wise man are, is about how they listen. And how they listen affects how they speak and the way that they walk. Verse 16 is the next verse. A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. Now, I think this is directly related to verse 15. Solomon's still talking about the fool. But you see, the fool's way is right in his own eyes, and exactly because the fool's way is right in his own eyes, he makes his wrath known at once. He doesn't restrain his wrath. He doesn't stop to think whether his wrath is just wrath. He doesn't stop to think about whether his wrath is going to have harmful or good effects. He assumes, because he's a fool and because he's proud, that his way is upright. And so he gets angry and he pours out his wrath immediately. He just lets it all hang out because he thinks his way is upright. Think of Saul, angry at Jonathan, his son, because Jonathan is defending David and getting so angry that he calls him horrible names and then throws a spear at him. Or think of Nebuchadnezzar, angry with Daniel's three friends because they will not worship his God, doing no greater harm to them by heating the furnace to a higher heat than he would have done if he had just carried out his initial purpose. But harming himself and his own people through letting his wrath have free reign. But the godly also fall into this sin. Moses was a fool when he opened his mouth and struck the rock, saying to the people of Israel, Hear now, you rebels. He acted very foolishly. King Asa. In 2 Chronicles 16, verse 10, also acted very foolishly against a prophet of God who warned him about the wickedness of his ways. 2 Chronicles 16, verse 10, then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. So this then this verse is about what the fool versus the wise man do with their rage. Whether they let it all hang out or whether they restrain it. Notice what Solomon says about the prudent man. He covers shame. What does Solomon mean? Well, I think what he means, people of God, is that the prudent man, when he gets angry, looks into his own heart and he says, now why am I angry? What is the nature of this wrath? If I express this wrath, is it going to do harm or is it going to do good? And he's he's able to see when his wrath is evil and he covers his shame. The wrath, the unrighteous wrath in his heart is shameful, yes, but because he's prudent He's able to cover the shame of his heart by not letting it hang out like the fool does. Solomon talks about this kind of thing in Proverbs 3, verse 35. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. And in chapter 13, verse 18, poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. So that's verse 16. What does the righteous man versus the wicked man, the wise man versus the fool, do with his anger? How does he talk through his anger? Verse 17, then, is a continuation, I think, of the thought of verse 16. But it doesn't come out as much in our translation as it should. A more precise translation of verse 17 would be this. He speaks righteousness, or he speaks truth. He declares righteousness, that who should not be there. He speaks truth. He declares righteousness. And the he that Solomon refers to is the he of verse 16b, the prudent man who covers his shame. That prudent man not only knows when to withhold his tongue from expressing the anger that is in his heart, but he is also one then who uses his tongue properly, he speaks truth, and he declares righteousness. And Solomon means not only that his words are righteous and that his words are true and faithful, but Solomon means that his words promote righteousness. He declares righteousness. He's, this is a very public kind of act that he's doing here. He declares righteousness, and in declaring righteousness, he promotes righteousness in his relation with his neighbor. He promotes righteousness in his neighbor's relations with others. He promotes righteousness within his community, that sphere of influence in which he walks. He uses his tongue, therefore, for truth and righteousness' sake. But a false witness, Solomon says, declares deceit. Now that seems at first glance, of course, to be a a truism, and a very obvious thing. Well, he's a false witness. Of course he speaks deceit. What else would you um, conclude from him? And why can't you say something a little bit more profound than that? A false witness speaks falsehood. Well, I think the point is exactly, again, people of God, this word declare, that this is public, that he's declaring deceit in a public place and that he's promoting deceit then. He's promoting deceit in the relationship which he has with his neighbor. He's promoting deceit in his neighbor's relationships with others. He's promoting deceit in the community in which he lives. He's promoting deceit in a world which is full of falsehood and deceit and lying already. He's only adding to the wickedness that already exists in the world. So you see, again, there's this difference between the righteous and the wicked tongue. The one speaks truth and faithfulness and righteousness. The other speaks and, by his speaking, promotes deceit. So those three verses, 15, 16, and 17, all together, I think, form really one kind of thought in which Solomon is contrasting the wicked and the righteous, the fool and the wise. Now we jump down to verse 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. And I think, again, there's a connection here with the preceding. Notice that word deceit. A false witness, he says in verse 17, declares deceit. And then in verse 20, deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. So what Solomon is doing is saying here in verse 20 that what he said in verse 20 in verse 17 can be traced to the heart of the fool, to the heart of the wicked man. He declares deceit. Why does he declare deceit? Because there is deceit in his heart. And why is there deceit in his heart? Because he plans evil is devising evil in his heart. But he will not let others know about that evil. Sometimes he won't even let himself know about the evil that his heart is devising. He carefully covers it. And so he needs deceit. He needs deceit to hide it from himself. He needs deceit to hide it from his neighbors. And so in along with his devising of evil, he, he plans deceit. He makes up lies. And then, as a false witness, he goes out and he declares that deceit to others. It's all a chain, therefore, that Solomon's building here, showing us the roots of the sin in the man's heart, his evil plans, the deceit that he practices on himself and others in order to carry out those plans, and then the deceitful words that he speaks in order that his evil plans may have a covering of piety so that others cannot perceive it. On the other hand, the counselors of peace have joy. And again, people of God, let's not make the mistake of thinking that what Solomon is saying here is that these people will always, in all circumstances, counsel peace. They may well sometimes counsel war. War in a righteous cause, war in defense of the truth, war against heresy, war against evil speaking and other kinds of evil in the church. But they are counselors of peace because if their counsels, whether of peace or of war, will lead to peace. They are counselors of peace because their goal, their ultimate goal is peace, whether they are counseling for the time being war, or peace in the current circumstances. They are those, then, who are peacemakers, those of whom our Lord Jesus Christ speaks in the Beatitudes. So that's another difference. They are counselors of peace, And, of course, this counsel, in contrast with the first part of that verse, this counsel of peace, which these speak, is counsel that arises out of a heart that considers the good of the neighbor. It's not a heart that plans evil. It's not a heart that devises deceit. It's a heart that seeks the good of the neighbor and seeks to give counsel that will lead to peace. Peace with God. And peace with men. And then finally there's verse 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge. But the heart of fools proclaims foolishness. And here you have a little different perspective on this whole thing. So far we've been considering how, what the wise man will do in his speech. Now Solomon looks at it from the other angle and says, there are times when the wise man won't speak. When he has knowledge to impart and he won't impart it. When he could give counsel of peace and he doesn't give it. Think about the ways our Lord Jesus Christ used silence. He told his followers, his disciples, don't tell men who I am. Not yet. When they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he told his disciples, don't talk about what you've seen on the mountain. Not yet. He concealed knowledge. Sometimes there may be various reasons for this. Sometimes, of course, it's a matter of not casting pearls before swine. Sometimes it's because uh, people are not ready to hear the truth. Jesus said to his disciples on the eve of his death, I have many things to say to you, but you're not ready to hear them yet. So there may be all kinds of reasons why the wise man who has knowledge to impart waits and says, not now, this is not the time. Elihu, the friend of Job, is a very good example of this. He waited until all his older friends had spoken. And he could see that all his older friends were on the wrong track with Job. He waited until he had heard all of Job's many, many words in his self-defense. It was right, he said, for him who was young to wait for the older ones to speak first. He concealed his knowledge until the time came for him to speak. A righteous man then does sometimes conceal knowledge. But the heart of fools proclaims foolishness. Again, you see the rashness of the fool. He has a thought and he speaks it. And because he's a fool, he speaks folly. There's nothing else that he has in his heart to speak. It's all folly to him. So you see how Solomon then in these verses is not only showing us the basic difference between the righteous man and the wicked man in regard to the use of the tongue, that one speaks for good, the other for evil. But he's showing us many other shades of difference between them too, how they conduct themselves and how they use their tongues in different settings and different circumstances. There's good instruction here for us. Finally, we look at the whole matter of rewards. We begin here with verses 13 and 14. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. The wicked opens his mouth, he transgresses. His words create for him a snare into which he falls. He gets entangled in the snares which he sets for himself. And you can see good examples of this in the scriptures. Think of that Amalekite who came to David to report how he had killed Saul. Saul David said to him, your own mouth has condemned you and commanded his men to uh, execute the Amalekite. Or think of those men who planned to have Daniel thrown into a lion's den and flattered Darius in order to persuade him to make this new law for the purpose of ensnaring Daniel. They fell into their own snare. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. Chapter 13, verse 14 talks about this kind of thing too, but from the opposite perspective. The law of the wise is a fountain of life, to turn one away from the snares of death. Or chapter 18, verse 7, a fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. It's entangled in his own words. His words bring his own judgment upon him. But the righteous comes out of trouble, Solomon says. And Solomon, of course, does not mean that the righteous man brings this trouble on himself by his words. The wicked man brings his own trouble on himself on himself. The righteous man Is in trouble, all right. He gets in trouble sometimes, but not through his wisdom, not through the wisdom of his words. Rather, he gets in trouble because of others, perhaps. And this is something that the Psalms talk about again in considerable uh, detail. Psalm 64 is a good example here. This is another Psalm of David. Iniquities, uh, excuse me, I'm in Psalm 65. Psalm 64. The wicked, he says, sharpen their tongues like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words. And then in verse 5, they encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, Who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. And David goes on then to say, God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. And again, in verse 8, He will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. Or Psalm 140, verse 5. Psalm 140, verse 5. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. Or Psalm 141, verse 9. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Well, what Solomon is saying is that the Lord brings the righteous out of those troubles, out of those snares which the wicked lay for him, but out of all the other troubles too into which he comes In this life, Joshua and Caleb, by their wise words, after their spying out of the land of Canaan, delivered themselves from the trouble that came on all the rest of their generation there in the wilderness. They were the only two in the whole nation of Israel who escaped the judgment of God on an unbelieving people. The wise man is one who receives then good from the hand of God. Verse 14, a man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. He speaks good, his mouth bears fruit of good things, and he receives good from God in his wise speaking. Now, the rest of verse 14 leaves us with a question, I think. The recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. You could take that as antithetical to the first part. You could put a but in there and it would still make sense. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, but the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. That is, God will deal with the wicked and he will render to them a recompense according to their works. You could also take it as an extension of the thought of the first part of the verse. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth and in addition, God will give him a recompense according to the works of his hands. Or you could take it as referring to both and inclusive of both. That he's talking about both the righteous and the wicked in that second part of the verse and simply saying a man will be rewarded according to his works. In the judgment of God, both the righteous and the wicked will be rewarded according to their works. I'm rather inclined to take it as uh, referring to the righteous only, but you can take it any one of those ways and you're still within the bounds of <coughs> biblical teaching. God renders to every man according to his works, but he also gives a recompense. I think that's the emphasis here. He gives a recompense to the righteous who speak good with their mouths whose works are good, and the recompense he gives to them is also a good thing. The next verse we have to talk about here is verse 19. The truthful lip shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. God establishes the righteous in life, in righteousness, in truth, in peace and joy forever. The counselors of peace have joy, he says in verse 20. The righteous lip, therefore, shall be established forever. And I think, by the way, that verse 19, it follows upon verse 18 for a reason. It's related especially to verse 18. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword. A lying tongue, Solomon concludes, is but for a moment. The tongue of the wise promotes health. The truthful lips shall be established forever. The lying tongue then is but for a moment. Gehazi went after Naaman and lied to him about what his master Elisha said. Then he came back to Elisha and he lied again about what he had been doing. And Very in very short order he was a leper. The lying tongue is but for a moment. Ananias and Sapphira came to the Apostle Peter with their lies about the land, and within moments both were dead. Next is verse twenty-one. No grave trouble will overtake the righteous but the wicked shall be filled with evil. You could translate that grave trouble as simply iniquity. No iniquity will overtake the righteous. The word can mean either thing here. I tend to prefer iniquity. What Solomon is saying is the Lord sets a guard upon his own people, upon the righteous, so that no iniquity can harm them. Iniquity rises up against them from day to day, but he sets a guard over them so that no iniquity can overtake them. But the wicked are filled with evil. All kinds of bad things happen to them. Not necessarily in this life, but certainly in the life to come. And then finally, in verse 22. The reason why these rewards are as they are is given to us. Why do the wicked suffer? Why are the righteous rewarded with good? Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. He blesses those who speak truth, righteousness, peace, and good. He curses those Who speak lies, whose words are like arrows that pierce and kill. So, people of God, if we would serve our God here in the world, let us do the things that delight him. Let us use our tongues for good and not for evil. Let us pray with the psalmist. Set a watch, O Lord, over the door of my mouth. Do not let any wicked word come from my tongue. Let us imitate our Lord Jesus Christ, whose mouth always spoke righteousness and truth. And let us seek him as the one who alone is able to make us wise, in our speech as well as in every other aspect of life, and as the one who alone is able to forgive our folly and our wicked speaking. May God bless the proclamation of his word.